0: Hi folks, it's Rick Wilson, and welcome to The
1: Daily Beast's The New Abnormal.
2: Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, a left-wing pundit and editor-at-large at The Daily Beast.
1: I'm also an editor at The Daily Beast, a former Republican political strategist, best-selling author, and full-time troublemaker. We're here to have fun, sharp conversations with some of the smartest people in media, politics, business, and science that help make what's happening in the country and the world clearer.
2: I'll try to keep Rick to the minimum number of F-bombs and try to keep our kids, pets, and other wildlife sounds from invading our respective bunkers. So today we have a very special exciting guest who's one of our favorite guests. Is that fair, Rick?
1: Uh, it is more than fair.
3: Uh, wait, one of? Can I get a ranking? Like, am I in the bronze,
1: or where, where do I fit? We've had to change our rankings after the Miles Taylor situation.
3: I was yes. behind Miles <laughs> before? I could never have been behind Miles.
1: Please.
2: Ooh. But Tim Miller, Republican strategist, member of Republicans of the of Law, Bulwark columnist. And yes, madam
1: let's not miss Arvat.
2: Yeah. One of our favorites is joining us today.
1: Since as you're listening to this, people in, across this great country of ours are voting, we thought we would talk today about my interest in Tuvan thro- throat singing, <coughs> long-distance equestrian sports, and uh, the Galapagos silence. Or we yes. could talk about the election.
3: Rafalka. Oh,
2: yeah. I think it's fair to say that some people are listening to this while waiting online to vote.
1: Which I love for you. And I hope that if you're listening to this while you're waiting to vote, we are bringing you at least some amusement and enlightenment. There are many other podcasts, but ours is here for you today on this most important and solemn of days.
2: Do you know what happened this weekend?
1: Well, I know that Bill Barr had to um, step forth from his den like a badger having been baited out to greet a group of Antifa far left super progressive protesters oh I'm sorry it was actually a group of Q-centric Trump fans angry with Bill Barr for not arresting Joe and Hunter Biden I
2: want to Point out this very important detail because I was actually sent photos from someone who was there. These people brought a white horse with them.
1: Well, as one does to
3: any protest these days. What is the symbolism of that? Um, this is. I don't know. I haven't <laughs> been <laughs> I haven't been watching my cue drops closely enough. Apparently, I, I don't know. Maybe it, may, I, it <laughs> feels like there must be some symbolism about a white horse in front of Barr's house. I will point out that in the Book of Revelations.
2: Oh, see, there we go. Tell us some
3: Christian stuff. I'm
1: not. I'm not even going to Google this, but I believe the white horse in the Book of Revelations was the the writer who was bent on conquest and war. If I'm not mistaken,
3: I did. I went to Jesuit high school. I, I wasn't into the Opus Dei, Bill Barr shit. So I don't know about I don't know about all the tongue speaking. We're not we're not,
1: from, we're not from that Opus Dei thing, are we? <laughs>
3: Was something that stood out to me. so I wrote about this um, for the Bulwark uh, yesterday. If you, if you want to check out the full the full read, um, but but there there was one little note about this that really stood out to me, and that is that Barr went outside to greet yeah. them, and and he did selfies. He did selfies with these <laughs> folks. So 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 we've got like these insane larpers that are fantasizing about pedophile rings deep inside our government going to his home. And to describe, to I mean, you would think that this, he might be concerned this is a security risk, but no, Barr goes outside. Does he know how to do selfies? I mean, I guess maybe one of them was doing <laughs> selfies with him. Right. <laughs> uh, and this is the same guy that, you know, you don't recall just a few months ago, like ordered the gassing of ministers outside of the White House who were peacefully handing out water to Black Lives Matter protesters. So it, it doesn't seem right. like the, the scales of justice are balanced for me on who gets the selfie treatment and who gets the rubber bullet grenade.
2: Jesse and I are... Our- producer did this very dorky live election integrity live stream earlier today, which was like reading the encyclopedia, but sort of fascinating. And in it, they talked about this march where these parents and children marched to the polls and and were gassed.
3: Yeah, Pepper Street, these kids are crying. This is in Graham, North Carolina. And they're, they're young black kids who were part, going with their parents to this march. George Floyd's niece was going to speak. Uh, I guess the reports from the ground are they had a moment of silence in front of the courthouse. Now, this wasn't in front of, you know, the Attorney General's private home. This was in front of the courthouse right. on a, With a white horse uh, uh, protest site. And there are these guys that are in fatigues and gas masks it's like for a small-town civil rights parade and you know, start fi- indiscriminately firing pepper spray into the crowd. I, I mean, it's just the, the contrast between that and, and Barr's house and the truck nuts is very, very stark. And it and it is not a, it's not a fucking accident it's about who's being targeted his not
1: Can we talk about the truck nuts for a second please <laughs> Because the Texas guys the Texas guys were one thing, and I want to revisit that in a second, but the Jersey, or the Garden State Parkway shut down by the Trumpers yesterday, I'm thinking, if you're Bill Stepien, who runs the Trump campaign, and you see this on TV, after you've shut down the fucking George Washington <laughs> Bridge one time,
2: you got to be thinking, <laughs> oh, like... that's right. He yeah, was involved in bridge. Yes.
1: I, I'm gonna, just going to declare, I think Bill Stepien must have ordered this. If he hasn't, he hasn't said anything, so therefore he must have... <laughs> <laughs> But if you see that on TV and you're bell stepping, you gotta be thinking, Siri, how can I immigrate to Chile? <laughs> <laughs> Siri, extradition treaty, Thailand. <laughs>
2: I love that Rick Wilson like devotes some amount of the pod to whoever in the Trump campaign is listening to it
1: oh I, they <laughs> are though it's so cute I know. Oh,
2: but you're like my message to bill step in if you're listening
1: a friend of mine sent me a picture of a trump car rally there from a couple weeks ago and there were more confederate flags than you would have seen in the average alabama football game on the weekend i mean it was crazy right. i'm thinking do you guys know what side new jersey, fought? New jersey was or, union or, are, are you briefed <laughs> on that are you briefed on that one <laughs> Apparently, y'all
3: aren't. <laughs> yeah, my husband's from West Virginia, and I know there are a lot of Confederate flags in West Virginia. And I, it's, I'm like, oh, you're aware why you're West Virginia, not just Virginia, <laughs> right?
4: <laughs>
3: <laughs> Back to the truck nuts. Did you see the statement that the sheriff put out in defense of the truck nuts? <laughs> because this was this was actually the highlight of my weekend. He said that the uh, Biden campaign should have alerted him that they were coming through as Jurisdictions so that he could have protected them. Like we're in, like we're in old, like we're in the old west, right? <laughs> and you need to, you need to call the sheriff before you're coming through town, just you know, so the angry hordes don't don't come and attack you. I did get, a, I did
1: get a bit of joy out of that. That's like blazing saddles, written new. <laughs> So
2: Trump World has had some really unsuccessful events lately where more than once, I think twice now, they've had the buses not taking the people back to their cars and leaving the followers stranded. Correct. And once they had the older people getting hypothermia and then this time this weekend. And I'm curious to know, do you guys think these people... Will still vote for Trump, even though he gave them hypothermia?
1: Yes, he is he is testing them. He is test he is testing their faith in him.
3: Well no, he's giving them the high high treatment, which is uh, therapeutic for COVID. It's hypothermia and hydroxychloroquine. Right.
1: <laughs> <God>. <laughs> you know, as our friend as our friend Hillary Loro said, come for the COVID, stay for the hypothermia. <laughs> I, I I actually I don't
3: I mean, I hope that I don't I hope all these people recover and et cetera. But I I, I do worry about like the gal at Starbucks. Or at the McDonald's yeah. um, across from these rallies, um, who didn't who didn't do anything? She just, you know, went to her job and voted for Joe Biden responsibly, and now she's getting the coronavirus because these numb nuts all just packed in ten thousand people strong into a freezing cold Donald Trump rally. It is outrageous and totally unconscionable. Truly,
2: and the doctors who are going to have to treat these people, you know, and uh, I mean, this is what it, it is. Like, you know, it's a it's a highly contagious virus, so it's never going to stop with the
3: MAGA. And Rick, I saw this video of our old friend Marco yesterday at this rally. <laughs> yes, where he shouting, He's shouting, all these people are shouting, it's late at night, they're all packed in there together. I'm just like, does he really think this is going to hold up well? Like, four years from now, when he wants to run for president, when people are showing videos of him, like, at a death cult rally, attack King sleepy joe I, I i don't maybe he does think maybe I, maybe I think so but like you know there'll be a half million people dead by the time the next election comes around
1: like what are they why is he doing that my favorite text about that a guy who's raised a seven-figure sum for marco over his campaigns in the presidential texted me and said oh god you're getting all this video down aren't you yes <laughs> And my response was, oh, not just for Marco. They're all doing it. <laughs> you know? But I, but it was it was a clownish performance and it was yeah, he cheered on the Texas truck guys. Yeah. It's like it's like what are you thinking? What do you think people are gonna look at this like in a couple years? Or a couple months. Right. It's not just bell bottoms, Marco. Okay. It's not <laughs> just parachute pants. It's not just something you could like, oh, that was a brief fad. You went out and you basically bowed down to Donald Trump at a moment where a pandemic is spiking across this country. I guess the part of it that really strikes me is that these guys, he is surrounded by people who are not stupid. But they are telling him, like, well, we've got to keep the space. The base will never change. This will always be what it's like. And so, you know, we can't get primaried someday by someone saying you weren't sufficiently loyal to Donald Trump.
2: Speaking of which, who primaries, Marco, in 2024?
1: Well, that would be your boyfriend, Rick Gates. Oh, I mean, Matt Gates. Excuse me.
2: (laughs) You think it's Matt Gates or you think it's Junior in florida yeah
3: are we sure that junior isn't going to be schlonging marco in the presidential primary in
2: 2024 oh no
1: <laughs> i think junior and and tucker carlson and marco will be, may be fighting it out in the presidential and, and eventually of course the deal will be made and you know vice president carlson will rule with an iron fist for a thousand years <laughs>
2: You know, you think this is funny. Some of us just find this very stressful. To
1: quote my my late and beloved grandmother, Gallo's humor son is still humor. (laughs) Hey, Molly, if you were going to pick like a very popular figure in the country who is one of the few shining lights in in the darkness that is COVID, who would that be?
2: Right after I killed Santa, I might fire Fauci. (laughs)
1: Hold on! Before I fire Fauci, I want to warm up by setting this bucket of kittens on fire. On fire! I mean, it's like Joe
2: Lota. Remember Joe?
1: Jill- yes, sir Uh huh. Yeah.
2: In the Senate race, when he's like in his—I'm sorry—in the mayoral race, right when he's like, "I would kill the kittens. I would run them over with the subway train. I would not stop the subway train." That's what this is like.
3: I mean, this is an outside of board thing. On this, it's like. You know, there are these seniors out He's tanking with seniors. It's likely to be the death knell of him. And there are all these seniors out there that, like, I think just, like, really want to vote for him, kind of, right? They agree with him on most things, and but he's just so crazy, and he's been so irresponsible on the virus. And, like, if he just behaved for the last week, just kind of, just a little bit, sort of like he did in 2016, you know, maybe the magnet... The partisan magnet pulls some of these people back, and rather than do that twenty-four days before the election, it's like, no, fire Fauci. I'm going to get rid of Fauci. I'm just going to rub your face in the novel coronavirus, and you're going to vote for me anyway. And you're going to like it. It's like it's a just a it's just a unbelievable strategy. And and the thing is, it was not a strategic move. He's just such a baby that the crowd started chanting, "Fire Fauci! Fire Fauci!" And he can't help himself but, you know, wanting to fill that hole, that black hole in his heart and, so, and give the people what they want.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I feel like it's important to remember he is never playing three-dimensional chess. He's always just eating a checker.
1: No, it's always impulse. It's always whatever brain fart is that at that moment occurring to him. He's he's like an animal that chases a butterfly through the forest and runs into things while he's doing it. Oh, I'm going to get it. Yeah, there's no chess. There's no strategy. There's just, there's just the moment. Pure impulse.
2: It is sort of amazing. I'm just still shocked that he's still close in some of these states.
1: Well, look, there, there is a natural tightening of the race at this point where- the partisan numbers have come home. A lot of voters who voted early um, have now sort of, you know, I won't say they switched off, but they're not as uh, there's not as you know in your face on social media and everywhere else. And the Trump folks are feeling a little bit desperate. They're feeling a little bit. They're feeling like the world is coming down around them, and they're not wrong.
3: You also have the epistemically closed information loop that the, that people yep. are in i mean it, molly if you just want just to let your blood blood pressure spike but also get a sense for what's happening go go watch a, a tape of yet last night's mark levin show on the fox news network that he runs <laughs> <laughs> <in
1: China. laughs> why won't they talk about tony <laughs> he, he literally spent
3: five minutes Playing Trump's Mount Rushmore speech to like patriotic music in the background on the, on the eve of of on election eve. I mean, it's like uh, you know, it is the people. These people are not getting this information that you find to be disqualifying, and if it slightly breaks through the cracks, you know, their their defenses have built up such they're not letting it sink in. They're completely rejecting it as being uh, you know the fake news mongers.
2: That is so nuts to me. I mean, and I know it's happening. And we saw like Eric and Junior. I mean, there's just... you know what I think is an interesting shift is that in 2016, those guys, the Trump crew shared misinformation and disinformation, but they did it inadvertently. Now, four years later, it's like their campaign is doing it.
3: Four years later, all the whole last four years they've been doing it. That's just the deal now. They, they don't even attempt to try to engage in a, a debate of ideas, right? That is like not what is happening in this campaign. What Donald Trump is out there when he's he's talking about a fantasy Joe Biden that wants to send Cory Booker to rape your wife and you know allow Antifa to run rampant over the country and bring in you know the social Shari- regime,
1: Sharia Shari yeah right? exactly. And then
3: online <laughs> you've just got Trump Jr. and Rick Grinnell and all these clowns like tweeting memes that are you know either altered or disinformation or whatever bubbles up out of eight. Chan. like that's it that's the campaign like that that, I mean, that has been the entire and it's been the president's
2: doesn't rick Grinnell know like crazy national security staff
1: yeah it's disturbing yeah it should scare the shit out of you what he knows it should scare the shit out of you because when he walked in as as dni he got the briefings and he got the sources and methods stuff that i'm sure the intelligence community probably spent the last four years thinking Let's just not mention this source here in this country because you never know, you never know that whether the president will just blurt it out on an open fucking cell phone, which he would.
3: The good news is, Rick actually doesn't care about learning about the information about the you know Middle Eastern threats. Like, what he really cares about is how hard he can own Swin and Lachlan with his like fake tweets. Right. So, like, right. I mean, like, when he was getting those reports, like, that's what he was focused on. How can I manipulate oh, this yeah. report to own?
1: You right. know some liberal journalists on Twitter,
3: like that—that that was his yeah. main focus. So
1: that—that that should be what is the this national better. security you speak of? I'm here to own the libs. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean, but that's the thing, though. What has saved American democracy, or what will hopefully save American democracy, is how stupid these people are. Next time, we may not be so lucky.
1: I don't know. That's why I worry about you know the Tom Cottons and the Josh Hollies of yeah. the world. Josh Hawley and Tom Cotton will come into that same thing and say, "How do I keep these these people that were Trump's base, pissed off, paranoid, freaked out, angry, and ready to burn themselves alive for me?" And they'll do it when sitting by sitting in a room with pollsters and data guys and analysts and psychologists, and they'll build something more frightening that, that looks less crazy and less you know clownish than Trump. It'll be just as scary on the nationalist populist thing and the authoritarian in waiting thing. Though so That's why you don't take these guys lightly.
2: Right. It's true. <laughs> Let, can we talk about Texas for a minute? Sure. Because David Wasserman has Texas as a toss up and I'm seeing a lot of polling that has it like one point away. That's humongous.
1: We resisted Texas this whole year. We kept saying, uh, oh, the data's moving, but it's not enough. It's not enough. It's not enough. This early vote in Texas is so cataclysmically large that we're going to watch it on election night. It's not going to be – state. It's not. you can't just put it to bed and say, oh, screw it. I still think it's a tough lift, but it's closer now than it's ever been in our lifetimes. And it really – what Texas does is what makes the decision between whether or not this is a 1980 race or a 1964 race. If Texas goes, it's nineteen sixty four, and that's the ball game. And Trumpism is on the ash heap of history. Yeah, that night, uh, it'll still have its devotees. You know, it'll still have its its versions of like the the diehard bircher style guys. But it, it, if 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 Texas blows out Georgia, I agree with Wasserman. I'm, I I now think I'm going to call Georgia for Biden by a close number. But if Georgia and Texas go, uh, even if Florida stays red. It is the political cataclysm of the century for the Republican Party.
2: But it does seem like in places like North Carolina, I mean, Cal Cunningham is winning and Tillis is dying.
3: Yeah, well, there is this other demo, too, in certain states, depending on the the thing can counteract it, but there are still some, like, blue-collar former Democrat types that like Trump, that are culturally conservative, but that don't like the Chamber of Commerce Republican types like Tillis. So, and so, so right. it's possible that it can work the other way, too, in certain places, and I think that is happening to Tillis, where I think that he'll run slightly behind Trump.
1: It's weird, because Cunningham... And Biden both, and I want to dig into this at some point after we finish this uh, hell election. The October surprises and the last-minute Oppo hits this year, yeah, have all just fallen completely flat.
2: <laughs> How many I mean, laptops?
1: You know, Cal Cunningham. Cal Cunningham took a beating on this affair story. And within 10 days, his numbers are back.
3: Trump just overshadows all that shit. It just doesn't work. With the virus and Trump, it's just too much to break through.
1: Yeah, I I think that's exactly right, Tim. It's just There's just this infinite amount of overhang from Trump and and COVID and everything else. And people just go, okay, yeah, so he screwed around. Okay, here we go.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I think it's true. I think it's also interesting, though, that these were just like the last minute Oppo dump on Hunter Biden's laptop.
3: Dun, just, dun, they, dun. they
2: knew it wasn't picking up and they just kept going with it. They were like, but what's really on the laptop? Like, nobody gives a shit. I mean, the guy lives in California. He doesn't work in the government. It's, I mean, meanwhile, Ivanka Trump made how many millions of dollars last year? I mean,.
3: Oh, you mean the blind computer repairman story wasn't wasn't the silver bullet? Right. Uh, you know, I mean, like the, the sun the son making money. when you have Jared Kushner doing deals with MBS while he's ch- while he's chopping up journalists. that
1: didn't break through. That's yeah.
3: interesting. Right.
2: on WhatsApp.
1: Call me you crazy. <laughs> and and the other the other part of it that just this idea inside the the Trump media sphere. That if only someone would say the name Tony Boboluski, the whole world would, would pay attention. It. It'll all change tomorrow. Bobolinsky,
0: Bobolinsky, Bobolinsky, It's like Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. <laughs> so it's election day and Rick and Molly, you two are going to be doing a Q&A for Beast Inside members. Or is today. it a
5: QAnon? <laughs> oh, damn it, damn it, damn it. <laughs>
0: So I wanted to ask one of the questions I saw from your listeners that I thought was interesting, which is ignoring majorities and you can't answer. Senator Congress, what's the seat you'd most like to see flipped in this election for the three of you to answer?
3: I'd like to get rid of Dan Crenshaw, and I'd love to see SEMA uh, in Texas beat him. Uh, He's just the phoniest of all. Well, you know, it's a competitive category, so he's at the top tier of phonies. (laughs) And uh, I think that's a surprisingly close race. Um, It's a bit of a stretch. I don't want to pick an easy one that the Democrats are going to win in anyway. So it's a little bit of a stretch. I'd, I'd, I'd like to see SEMA snake him.
1: Good choice. Rick Wilson? If I could flip one, if I could just flip one of these people, it would be Mensa candidate Devin Nunez. <laughs> <laughs> just because he is part of this interlocking directorate of fuckwits, Who have promoted every goddamn conspiracy theory just because he is Derek Harvey's, you know, sugar daddy in spreading these ridiculous uh, conspiracy things and, and completely turning the elements and arms of government into weapons for Donald Trump. but. Unfortunately, I don't think we're going to get that one.
2: So mine, I I want to say Mitch McConnell I, that I want, even though I know that's not happening because he's just so destructive. Actually, you know what? I'm changing it. It's Mike Espy. <laughs> My candidate is Mike Espy. I'm sorry. I get very involved. Good Mike Espy because he's he grew up in Mississippi. He lived through Jim Crow. He is, like, back, and he's just— in, awesome and the idea of sending i mean if we could if democrats could send three african-american senators to the senate that would be incredible and it would change you know we've only ever had 10 so mike espy is my pick he's amazing
3: my husband is a mike espy stan so he'll be so happy to hear that he got the shout out i mean he's just
6: so
1: so great we we did a little bit of work down there and you know there's a possibility of runoff that would be something that would be something
2: Erin Banco is a national security reporter for The Daily Beast. And today she's going to talk to us about two completely insane Trump myths. One is Hunter Biden's laptop. And two is that Trump has done a great job managing the pandemic. Erin, how many laptops did Hunter Biden have? (laughs)
5: <laughs> so, for a long time, when I say a long time, it felt like eons, but I guess it was really only like a week or two. We were paying attention to what the computer repair shop guy in Wilmington, Delaware, was saying. Didn't you go down there? So, I did not personally go down there, but I, you know, kind of badgered the editors saying we really need to. Either let me go or let's send somebody who is a stringer because I was so, from the very beginning, so fascinated in how this random guy from Trolley Square, Wilmington, Delaware, got involved in this major political story, one of the biggest political stories of 2020. And so we, we ended up sending a freelancer down there to, to chat with him and caught him a little bit off guard. And so what he ends up telling us is that well, who he thinks is Hunter Biden comes in and, you know, gives him three laptops. Oh, God, there are three. Well, that's what he says. And then, then we really kind of whittle that story down to find out that there's really only one that the FBI has and is working with for whatever reason, which we don't really fully understand why the FBI has that and what they're doing with it. But my colleague, Lachlan Marquet, reported a couple of weeks ago, I think it's actually a week ago now, that there's a second laptop. So I think we're a little unclear still. We know there's definitely one. One might be two.
2: I got into trouble with an opinion piece I wrote this weekend Where I said that because the Washington Examiner took a snippet of that piece and said there's a second laptop and I said that the Washington Examiner had discovered a second laptop when in fact, again, it's not even clear there is a second laptop, but if it is, it was actually broken by Lachlan Marquet.
5: Yes. Lachlan Marquette wrote that last week, early last week.
2: Yes, it's important to get your Hunter Biden laptop stories
5: correct. (laughs) Yeah, I guess, guess, um, you know, it's it's looking back now on the origins of this story. It's really interesting to see the trajectory of it. Right. That it, it goes from this this guy in Wilmington saying that he was given three to him saying, well, I don't really know how many I actually gave over. And, And then I copied the hard drive of one, but not the others. And then, and then the FBI confirms they do have one of Hunter Biden's laptops You know, Marquet says, no, there's actually two. So who knows, really? I think there's at least one. (laughs) So the thing that I find fascinating about this story is it has not
2: ever caught fire. No one is interested in Hunter Biden's laptop for any number of reasons, perhaps mostly because Ivanka works in the White House and Hunter lives in California and seems to have no connection to a Biden White House. Why do you think they're so stuck on it?
5: You know, at the Daily Beast, we really tried to do our due diligence um, at the beginning. In trying to run down who was behind the operation, what, you know, who had these laptops, who was this guy, John Paul McIsaac in Delaware, what was his story. And so we spent about a week really trying to get the nitty-gritty and granular details on how this laptop came into the news. And and so what we ended up finding out was that Rudy Giuliani, when he would talk to the press, really wanted nothing to do with the process story. He would always steer clear of saying how he got the materials. He was always more interested in pushing the press to look at what the materials actually said. But of course, the process is, is the story. It's part of the story, a large part of it. And so what ended up happening is that I think Giuliani and others along the way started to either not trust the mainstream media outlets with the documents that they had had, that they wouldn't tell the story they wanted. And so what ended up happening is that these materials made their way only to a couple of outlets that Giuliani or his other, you know, colleagues and people that were working with him were attached to. And of course, we broke the story that, you know, former Fox News exec Ken LaCourt was behind a large push uh, in trying to get these materials out to the conservative media. But it just never ended up taking off the way I think Giuliani had hoped. And I think that's in large part because he really pushed back against anybody wanting to ask questions about how he got the materials in the first place.
0: That's so interesting since we've always heard that if Fox runs with a story, that it's just to become part of the conservative media and that they run the show. But you really think it's just because there were so many holes in the story that it did not catch on?
5: I think that that was part of it, but I also think that there was very public skepticism about this computer repair guy in Delaware from Republicans like Ron Johnson and other people working these materials from Capitol Hill. I think very early on there were doubts about how Giuliani got the materials and you know who he relied on to get them pushed out to the press, and so from that point, once you have people raising questions about them, it's really hard to continue pushing them out in the way that you want. I believe a reporter, you know, an anchor, or TV personality on Fox News even, I forget who it was, exactly questioned the authenticity uh, of this computer repairman and, and the materials themselves, and I think Johnson went on several TV outlets saying, "You know, look, we're doing our due diligence. We're not sure this is real. We're, you know, we ha- we have no idea yet." And at that point, this story, I think, was sort of dead in the water.
2: Yeah, it's such an amazing story, and also Steve Bannon figures into this too, right?
5: Yeah. So according to Steve, who. You know, <laughs> not <laughs> not <laughs> who is technically, isn't he technically out on bail right now? I think so. Um, but we tend not to react him that often given right. um, his unreliability, but you know, he did appear on YouTube uh, with Rudy and on other news outlets talking about his involvement. And he says that he came in at the very end in August, Rudy pulled him in because, Apparently he knew best how to get these materials out into the ether but even Bannon kind of dropped off. That's <laughs> not good. Yeah, and he just he I think his role was always, you know, supposed to be behind the scenes and Rudy was also supposed to be the one that went on TV and talked about it. But the problem with Rudy as we all know is that, you know, he got himself caught up in the Ukraine madness and and right. working with Derkach who we, you know, designated as a Russian agent and so you know, there were credibility problems from the beginning with Giuliani, which, you know, I think is part of the reason why this story never kicked off the way he wanted. I also think
2: that the Borat stuff did not help him. Is that fair?
5: I don't know. I don't. I, you know, I really don't know how much the Borat stuff played into all of this. I think it definitely, you know, uh, made him turn off his cell phone for a few days. The <laughs> so reporters couldn't reach like him. Which of course is always how this goes with Giuliani. Any reporter who talks to him knows that you know you catch him when you catch him, and he's really hard to get a hold of. And when you do get him on the line, there could be a, there's usually always a story in that conversation. Um, but if you don't get him on the line, then there's no story. And so when when he you know kind of went dark there for a couple of days. That's when it started to slow down, I think.
2: So we have this situation now where we have Eric and Rick and a lot of Trump surrogates sharing disinformation and really going hardcore, no rules kind of stuff, which we see in Trump, too, this weekend, his, like, lies and
5: rhetoric. What is going on? So I think... You know, from an intelligence and national security story standpoint, this is what officials have been worried about for quite a while, right, years. That 2020 would be the election of disinformation, misinformation, and that, you know, uh, officials in, in CISA, in, in DHS, and in other corners of the government would have to work to sort of combat not only disinformation from, from foreign adversaries, but just domestically as well and from within the White House. And so I think we've already started to see that disinformation story kick off today, or I guess it was last night. And in the administration, officials have already paid close attention to the Rick Grinnell tweet. They viewed this as a launching point for for this disinformation 2020 election story. Can you say which one that wa- that was, so that listeners? There were two photos that he tweeted out side by the side. There was a photo of, of Biden apparently not wearing a mask on a plane, and then public. And of course, that that photo of him on the left of him not wearing a mask was from 2019. And had nothing, I mean, before the pandemic hit, had nothing to do with um, his election bid. And so, you know, the fact that you have our former acting ODNI director tweeting out photos that are inaccurate raises all sorts of alarm bells for NATSAC and Intel officials who are closely monitoring the election. And so it's it's ironic now that we're, you know, four years past 2016 and that our 2020 this info story seems to be coming from within the house. Yeah, and I certainly never expected that it would get this way, or get this bad. Um,
2: yeah, yeah, nuts, right? I mean, you never thought you'd see that.
0: So, Aaron, speaking of totally ridiculous things that I couldn't believe, I saw a headline from you today <laughs> that after all these years of paying attention to Trump that COVID is Trump's undoing and he truly thinks he nailed it. This is a hard one for me to believe that he actually deep down does believe he thinks he nailed it. Can you talk to us about the story a little bit?
5: So I think the rhetoric coming from inside the West Wing is that the president does believe he crushed the coronavirus. (laughs) You think he really believes that? Who knows what Trump really believes, right? I mean, I... When he gets out on the campaign trail, he tends to exaggerate things. But I, I do think there's a good chance that Trump thinks that he there's nothing more he could have done, and that he 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 did the best um, of any other world leader. And and that's certainly been the conversation inside the White House. And you know, when the president talks about it to his, to his advisors, he's he's reinforced by the people around him believing in the fact that they just killed it, that they did an awesome job they did kill it (laughs) of course that is just wildly inaccurate and we have a worrying amount of positive cases throughout the country and mainly in the Midwest, and the death rate is, you know, going to spike in the next few weeks, um, according to, you know, our nation's top health officials, like Dr. Anthony Fauci. It's curious to me, and I, I too am flummoxed by this idea that Trump thinks he can get up on the campaign stage and campaign on the idea that he saved the country. You know, we have 200 and how many thousand dead and more coming. And it's almost like we're living in this sort of warped reality where, you know, all the scientists and doctors working around him are screaming at him metaphorically saying, you know, wake up. There's, there's so much more we need to be doing here. And the white house now just simply believes like, listen, we're not going to get anything done before there's a viable vaccine. So we're just going to let this play out and see what happens. And so the calculation they've made is that taking that stance is okay because as long as the economy is open to the best of its ability, then, then Trump has done his job. It's a pretty bleak situation on the task force right now. I've had the pleasure of talking to a number of top officials who work with that task force who say even they have thrown their hands up in the air at this point. And they're the ones that are supposed to be pushing back on Trump and, and helping the rest of the country. Even if they're sort of down and out right now, that's alarming. Is there just no task
2: force anymore?
5: I mean, there is technically a task force. There are a number of officials, doctors, scientists, statisticians, working on the federal government's response to the coronavirus, and they work within this sort of you know, group, which you could call a task force. But the main task force is not meeting anymore. Those meetings happen, I guess. There are one off chances where officials will meet with the vice president or, or you know, Azar will meet with Gerard or what have you. But the formal task force really isn't meeting much anymore.
2: Do you think that if Biden wins, which, again, we don't know, that he can start taking over coronavirus or not really? Nothing can happen until January, right?
5: If Biden wins, he can start forming relationships with governors across the country, with local and state health officials. He can start sort of a grassroots movement to regain the trust of, of at least the states. But from a realistic standpoint, he's not going to be inaugurated and in government until January. And by that point, that'll be right around the time maybe we have a vaccine, or a vaccine at least for, for some people, we could have many, many more deaths and cases by that point. So I'm not sure what world he'll be stepping into if he does win. We did get to talk to the Biden campaign about their plans for when and if he enters office, And it sounds like they're going to try to revamp the entire infrastructure within the federal government, you know, who's in charge, who's leading the response, and they're going to try to ramp up testing and then make sure vaccine distribution is set. But even that might not be enough at that point. It depends on what kind of fall we have.
2: Erin, thank you so much for joining us. This was... Anytime, guys.
5: I really appreciate you having me on.
6: Hi there. We have a special surprise from
2: Beast Inside, the Daily Beast's membership program.
1: On Election Day, the new abnormal will do what we always do and talk about what's happening in this election. And you can listen in if you join Beast Inside Today. There, you'll gain access to an exclusive Zoom version of our podcast that day where you can ask your own questions. We'll get through this election together.
2: We'll help you stomach the last moments, or so we hope, of the longest, weirdest, crappiest presidential campaign in modern history.
1: Join Beast Inside Today and then join us on Election Day when we pull back the curtain. New Abnormal Style. Again, this is only for Beast Inside members.
2: To hear this, along with the rest of our upcoming bonus episodes, head to newabnormal.thedailybeast.com. That's newabnormal.thedailybeast.com. Adrian Perkins is the mayor of Shreveport, Louisiana, and is running for the Senate, challenging incumbent Republican Bill Cassidy. Welcome, Mayor
7: Perkins. Super happy to be here, Molly. Thanks so much for having me on.
2: So talk to me about your race.
7: Okay, our race is actually going very, very well, and we are shattering expectations. We were late to the game. We, we announced in July. I had no plans of running at the beginning of this year. I'm in my second year as mayor of my hometown of Shreveport, uh, but this year COVID-19 changed the circumstances uh, in Shreveport and Louisiana and all around the country. And when trying to figure out how I can better serve and better protect my community, I decided to run for the United States Senate. And things have been going well. People told us we couldn't raise money. We actually have outraised the incumbent. Uh, we've raised over $2.5 million with over 70,000 contributions, averaging about $30 per contribution. All polls are suggesting right now that we are going to go into a runoff. Uh, people said that we couldn't even you know, consolidate the Democratic base, let alone make it into a runoff with Senator Cassidy. So we're breaking our expectations and we're going to continue to do so even in a runoff so that we can be successful in December. And that adds another element to this that's very important for people to know is that in Louisiana, our primary is on the day of the presidential election. Our runoff, is in December, on December
2: 5th. How are you having a runoff against an incumbent?
7: Yeah, so in Louisiana, we have a jungle primary. So there is no Democratic nominee or Republican nominee. Everybody jumps into the jungle primary. The top two vote-getters, if no one exceeds 50% plus one vote, goes into a runoff, a general election that will be held on December 5th.
2: Wow. To the naysayers, like 538, who don't... Talk to me about why... Things could change because this could be a crazy election. We don't know.
7: Five thirty-eight actually had it as a high probability that there would be a runoff, and yes. had me, I think, as the fourth or fifth, fifth most likely person to make the runoff. So we had to submit our own polling data from a reputable source to Five Thirty-Eight to show that we were not only in second place. But we were in second place by quite a bit of a margin, and we've only closed the gap even more between me and Senator Cassidy. So they've changed their evaluation to put us in that number one spot. They have not yet changed their evaluations on how winnable this seat is, but we're confident that in a runoff, they will do so. Because Louisiana just saw a Democrat versus a Republican last year when our governor ran against Republican candidate Eddie Responi. And he was successful.
2: As you well know, the, the Senate has not had a lot of African-American men in it or women.
7: No, I was is, about to say, ten, 10 total, men or women. Ten. You count, count them all, 10 total in the history. So
2: there's a movement of African-Americans coming back to the South, running for office. What's the feeling there? Like, Do you think we can get the African-American Democratic base to really like be represented in the Democratic Party?
7: Absolutely. Absolutely. I think this is a a bit of an evolution uh, that we're seeing down here. I think the old frame of mind was that you need to get a moderate Democrat in the South. And oftentimes that correlated with a white Democrat in the South so that you can get these, you know, undecided voters. But what we're seeing now that if you actually get a true Democrat, black or white, and in this case, we are seeing a lot of black candidates that you're able to galvanize your base, get them out to vote in order to keep these races close and for us to be successful. So I think we're, we're turning that old uh, understanding or the old assumptions on its head right now in a major way, and it's all coming together. It's all coming to a head kind of at once because I believe this is the most Black Democratic Senate candidates in history, especially with nominations for major parties.
2: Yeah, I think it's very exciting and that that's how Democrats are going to win. It's just it's also righting a lot of the many wrongs that have happened
7: in the South.
2: I'm curious to know, you're young and you have, you know, I mean,
7: Molly, I'm I'm old, Molly. I turned thirty five on Friday, last yeah, Friday. Yeah, so I'm pretty, you're real I'm old. pretty old. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're not impressed. I'm
2: curious to know, like a Mike Espy when when I talked to Mike Espy, we talked about growing up in the Jim Crow South and how hard it was to go back to Mississippi. And as you know, Mississippi is a primarily African American. or or it has a much higher percentage of African-Americans than much of any of the other states. And so it's very exciting, the idea of having leadership that reflects the population. You know, you're so young and just I'm curious to know what it feels like in the South and in Shreveport.
7: Yeah, I'll tell you this. So, you know, Louisiana is right behind Mississippi on African-American population. We have 33 percent of our population is African-American. And fun fact, four out of every 10 registered voters is African-American here as well. Uh, but yeah, I'm a little bit younger than Mike. So the South that I grew up in is a bit different than him, but that's not to say it was without the racial transgressions. Uh, you know, I, I had incidents where, you know, me and my family have had bad run-ins with law enforcement. You know, I was discriminated against and when I was a student for in various instances. So, you know, I was aware that I was an African-American growing up in the South at a young age. Fortunately, you know, there are way more positive incidences in my community uh, to really allow me to to live this life that I've been able to live. So, you know, it's not the same as Mike, but I will say this: I am still the grandson of a sharecropper. My grandfather was a sharecropper in a parish adjacent to Caddo Parish. We have parishes here, not counties. Uh, so, even though I'm younger, I still understand how quickly times have changed, and it, you know, would be my grandfather's wildest dream to think that in just you know, a generation that he could have a grandson running for the United States Senate. So it's still that perspective that Mike has and having lived it, my perspective isn't too far off. And I understand the gravity of what I'm doing in this moment.
2: You know, I think that's the only way we're going to get any kind of justice. You have to come in second now and Mm -hmm. then and then mobilize in December.
7: Yes. Yes. We have, to, we have to get in second and then we have to mobilize. And that's what I'm telling people right now that we need their support because we are the clear second, but we have to keep Senator Cassidy under 50%. And we have to close that gap between me and him because we don't want to create a GOTV problem in the runoff when we're mobilizing. And that GOTV problem would be people not believing we could close a gap if it's too large. So that's why it's important that we invest in this race now so that we don't have an insurmountable obstacle in front of us in the runoff.
2: Right. Okay. yeah. Talk to me about the difference between you and Cassidy. (laughs) Nobody really hears about Cassidy, but I mean, he's not. Yeah.
7: Yeah, I was going to say that's a huge list on the differences between me and me and Cassidy. Uh, And you say nobody has really heard about him. You're absolutely right. He stayed under the radar. But people probably remember him from three years ago when he tried to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act that would have stripped away health care from half a million Louisianians, but over 20 million Americans. Uh, So, yeah, after that failed attempt, when when Senator McCain did the famous thumbs down, he's laid pretty low because that's an embarrassing thing to that's an embarrassing record to have. You know, not only were you going to push this disastrous health care bill, but it failed. So, no, you know, people might know him for that. But I can tell you, he has been harmful to not just Louisiana, but the country, you know, and his voting record and not moving to make sure we get sufficient COVID-19 relief, pushing right now to say, oh, I'm fighting to, to fight against uh, surprise medical billing. But really, he's just siding with private equity companies and making it seem like he's fighting for patients. So he's he's a pretty bad character. And I would say another difference between the two of us is I believe in a functional government. You know, I believe in, in actually acting on those bills, those hundreds of bills that the House have passed that is sitting at the Senate's door and Mitch McConnell and and Republicans refuse to act on them. Not just the COVID-19 bill that they have refused to act on, but there's a voting rights bill and there's an infrastructure bill. There's a lot of other bills that need to be passed so that our country can move forward. And he is, you know, just right in line with his, political party, even if it's against the interests of Louisianans or the interests of Americans.
2: Thank you so much, Mayor Perkins. I hope you win your
7: runoff. Absolutely, Molly. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you so much you. for the support. All right. You guys have a good day.
1: For our last Fuck That Guy before this election, I would like to nominate the Trump war room. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. These are people who have spent their closing hours of this campaign. Pretending that Joe Biden wants to tear down the Washington Monument and attacking Lady Gaga. (laughs) Now, when you guys are done pretending that you understand these two fundamental American institutions, I want you to start practicing. Would you like double meat on that pizza? Because that is about where you fuckers are going to end up. Would you like that in a loafer or a pump?
2: (laughs) End up working for, like, the Heritage Foundation.
1: You know, here's the thing. There are only so many jobs in D.C. for pudgy 35-year-old incels who work in the Trump war room.
3: There are unfortunately more of those jobs than you wish there were. <laughs> I'm just I'm sorry to take everybody's joy away. But. <laughs> you yeah,
2: know, that's kind of my thinking. Um, my fuck that guy is South Dakota governor. Christy Nome, you know her state is being ravaged by coronavirus. She's out posing with guns and Bibles. And Laura Lomer. So you are my fuck that guy, Governor Nome.
1: Can I add a bonus fuck that guy to this episode? <laughs> of course. I would also like to give a bonus fuck that guy shout out to the Kentucky State Police. The Kentucky State Police, in their training program for their Kentucky State Police Academy, the PowerPoint for their incoming students includes quotes from Adolf Hitler and Robert (laughs) E. Lee about pursuing violence at all costs. Fix your shit, Kentucky State Police. (laughs) Jesus. Yeah, who
3: could
2: have seen that out of Kentucky?
1: (laughs) I would like
3: to give a fuck that guy to every Republican media consultant who is building their beach house in Bethany off of Sheldon Adelson and all of these other assholes super PAC money in defense of Donald Trump. You can Trump. say
1: you can say Chris. Lasavita. When they know better, Chris Great, <laughs> Chris Lasavita. But here is
3: the thing: Do I want to just say Chris Lacevita? Because Rick, it's all no, of these. Because fuckers. it's also Brad Todd and yeah, all these other all It's all of them. And to a person, they know better. You know, and it's like we had to hear from all the assholes that went into the administration and how they were saving us from Donald Trump's worst impulses and that was right. all bullshit, bullshit from the start but guess who's definitely not saving us from Donald Trump's impulses? The people that are raking the fucking Colin Kaepernick ads and paying for their, you know, getting their kids college fund filled out of it okay, so... We need jobs not yeah I, I, I'm just, <laughs> I, I'm really, I've really had enough of that crowd and, and today is election day for folks, and I hope that they have a very, very sad night, and I hope that they're, you know, can sit alone in their new beach house in Bethany with the Donald Trump wing and know that they paid for it with the blood of immigrants and refugees and all of the people who have died of yeah. the coronavirus.
1: Hey, hey, Tim, Tim, I'm sure you've heard this one. You guys are just
0: never Trump to rake in the big bucks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Can I do my first one ever? Please. Yes. Oh, yes, yes. Jesse. Jesse's going to do my first.
2: Fuck that guy. Let's go.
0: Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> So be after good. sitting at the sideline and watching you two gleefully get out your fuck that guys for 60 plus episodes, I want to get out my fuck that guy rage instead of putting it on Instagram stories yes. at the end of the <laughs> night. Thank you for allowing me this cathartic moment. One of the things we do on this podcast is to put thought every day into the implications of the questions we ask our guests and how they inform our listeners, because one of the ways we got Donald Trump is people who are terrible at explaining the world to other people, and one of the reasons I'm most proud of this podcast is that you guys do an incredible job of bringing perspectives that most people won't hear to people's ears, and I really am proud of the work we've done with that. So my fuck that guy is one Chuck Todd. The political director of NBC News and the host of two different shows on their networks was a highly influential platform despite doing a terrible job at doing everything I just described. This weekend, he asked the panel if the criticism that Biden is taking the virus too seriously is valid. He has access to so many resources and yet launders the dumbest Republican talking points as valid in the name of both sides And I really think that the media needs to learn this week, particularly when we're going to see an onslaught of the stupidest takes to justify the worst actions, that both sides needs to die today before it gets really, 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 really bad. So after years of him doing this and... Wondering the stupidest thoughts I've ever seen on television, up to Chris Saliza. <laughs> I say, Chuck Todd, oh, that in guy.
2: Silliza, dude, <laughs> <laughs> now, now it's war.
0: <laughs>
2: you brought a Saliza to a knife fight. <laughs> <laughs>
3: I just want the record to show that I'm not laughing, and I stayed out of this one. I made enough enemies on the media (laughs) consultant. Fuck that guy, okay? So I'm not (laughs) laughing for the record.
1: On that note, we'll wrap up this episode of The New Abnormal from The Daily Beast. In future episodes, we'll be talking with smart folks from The Daily Beast and beyond from media, culture, politics, and science who will help us understand what's happening to our country